New Year's resolution time. Um, everybody has them, I know. And we were talking about it this morning. Uh, even Cal, if I could share his, he said, going 35 years now, is it? 35 years strong, the New Year's resolution to not make any New Year's resolutions. He nailed it again, 36 now. Anyhow, we make these New Year's resolutions. Uh, you have them, I've got them. Uh, whether they're kept to yourself or shared with others uh, makes no difference. Um, maybe yours could be to share more embarrassing stories about yourself. So if you'd like to, no, uh, just kidding. I will, however, though, because we're going to kind of tie this throughout the theme uh, of the morning and the new series that, you're get, that we're getting started. You can see by the picture frames we have set out. Um, fourth grade students, at least in this area, um, I think all the schools have to choose uh, an instrument to play. And I and like five or six other students in my class opted uh, to not play an instrument. And so we fell in the... Um, umbrella course of non-band, cleverly named. And that it took us into all kinds of interesting classes, like typing a few times in a row. Uh, and, uh, and eventually it landed us, uh, me, in ninth grade by taking a wonderfully disastrous class called SHOP. <laughs> and uh, I'm in this class. Um, the exam was, I guess, where the, where the disaster sort of came to a head. Um, the exam was a packet that I had to uh, complete, packet of assignments, um, that you would add up as many assignments, as many projects as you can, uh, complete those, hand them in, the total should be right around 100, and then you're graded on them um, afterwards, and that was your grade. We were told two things. Um, in light of how many projects you had to get done and how little time, about three hours, the instructions were twofold. Work safely and work quickly, because most students go right up until the end. So work safely, work quickly. With that in mind, I set about work, and I'm you know, watching the clock, doing my you know, jigsaw, bandsaw, cutting little pieces out, mostly sanding, because that's what you do in ninth grade. I finish the, or I'm getting about like two-thirds of the way through, and I decide I'm going to finish this thing off by uh, completing a big assignment, a welding assignment. And you've got to understand something. I was not a bad welder. I was, however, uh, terribly uh, particular at getting the exact right welding flame. For me, whatever reason it was, it had to be this perfect blend of oxygen and acetylene in my torch. It had to be a, a, a perfectly symmetrical blue cone in the flame for me to even get started uh, on my project. So about 20 minutes later, when I finally have it set up like I want it, I'm a little behind, still doing okay, though. And I'm going at work. I have my, my pattern right here, and I've got my rod, you know, big leather gloves, goggles. And then I drop my welding rod. I had a couple options. I knew what I should do. I should power it down shut it down, take my gloves off, reach down, pick up the welding rod, turn everything back up, 20 minutes later, be gone again. But what I did do was look around. There's nobody in the welding area. It's a victimless crime. I'll just kind of hold my torch up in the air so as not to burn anything and just reach down from my stool four or five feet, pick up my welding rod and, and get back to work. 
Unfortunately, with these bulky, oversized leather gloves in my green goggles, I could neither grab anything nor see anything that I was doing. And as I'm reaching down and, and fiddling it, you know, and, and finally grabbing this tiny welding rod, I come up to realize that my perfect blue cone of a flame had been burning a hole clear through my exam packet the entire time I was trying to pick up my rod. Good thing I had those leather gloves on to stamp it out as quickly as I can. Clear through. For the second time in the morning, I had the option. I knew what I should do. I should own up to this, take a letter grade deduction for violating number one, uh, be safe, and get a new exam or whatever, the, whatever Mr. Hunnefeld, the teacher, had in store for me. But what I did do was take my exam in a packet, hurry, crinkle it up in a panic, and throw it away in the furthest most trash can away from everything in the shop room. I tell the teacher, Mr. Hunnefeld, I lost my exam. Dirk, how did you lose your exam? I mean, you have three hours. You work safely, work quickly. How did you lose it? I don't know. I just lost it. I need a new one. He said, uh, he said I'll never forget this. Well, we're just going to have to find it together, won't we? And so together, we spent the next 20, 30 minutes looking for an exam I had burned and thrown away doing everything I can to steer him away from the garbage can where, where I had hit it. Um, eventually, he did find it. And I also won't forget when he held it up to show me, and we made eye contact through the exam. <laughs> For the third time, I had the option. I knew what I should do. But instead, I made up a story about how one of the seniors must have stolen it, burned it, and hid it. And how this wasn't really my fault. Looking back now, I realize that I was, I was participating in a game that, honestly, I would play probably for the rest of my life. Looking back, I realize I was participating in a game that I'm guessing you all have played quite a few times in the past as well. The game, like most good ones, has a ball. The game is called the blame game. And if you've played, the object of the game is to not hold the ball at all. If you can just visualize what it's like to be with the blame, with the ball, for at any amount of time, human condition that we all suffer from, we're allergic to the ball. We will do anything to get rid of it, to pass it off. When I was in ninth grade, I tried to make up a fictitious senior classman who stole my exam, burned it, and hid it in hopes that somehow this fake person would take the blame and I didn't have to be anywhere around it. This morning, though, our story is going to take us not in a ninth grade shop class, but something uh, with infinitely more higher, deeper ramifications. We're going to get into um, this story of uh, the first couple, the first family, and the, the way that they handle, or better yet, mishandle uh, the blame game. But first, I have to introduce to you the, uh, the picture frames that you see around and the new series that we're in. 
uh, new year, new series. This one's called Dysfunctional Families. Um, why it's uh, dysfunctional families, I thought, what a wonderfully appropriate way to transition into the new year. As we uh, today officially mark the end of family season, starting with Thanksgiving, going through Christmas, maybe New Year's, it feels good to have uh, all of the extra parties, social events. It's good to be with family. It's good to be away, too. And sometimes I think, it, it, I think there's this sense that we get heading into the, the new year, looking backwards, going, does, every, does everybody have to deal with that? <laughs> like looking through the list of uh, weird uncles, uh, distant step uh, relatives, teenagers, uh, <laughs> does everybody have to put up with this? Is this normal? The theme of this series comes out of the fact that maybe we're tempted to like open up the Bible and say, hey, what does a normal family look like? Uh, if this describes you in the new year or you at any new year, I uh, applaud the instincts that you have, but at the same time want to point out it's a deeply flawed tactic. And we're going to get into that with this series called Dysfunctional Family by going to the very first book in the Bible, Genesis, literally called The Beginning. And about a third of the book of Genesis is about Abraham. I have to tell you something. If you're looking to Abraham as a, hey, what does a normal family, what does the biblical family look like? You don't have to read very far into the story of this guy's life to realize the biblical family, at least the Abraham's family, this is a twisted story. Just to get into a couple of points on Abraham. um, He was well into old age. He so desperately wanted a family. It couldn't have anything. That's the normal part. What's odd is that he actually starts a family with a woman who works in his house. Wait, And it was his wife's idea. As the story continues, Abraham has a child. And when that child is young, he takes him on a father-son trip up a mountain, ties his hands, ties his leg, puts him on a stone altar, raises a knife. You know where this is going. And God calls out, Abraham, stop, stop, stop. Don't go through with it. Don't you dare. And the family ramifications of that, I can only imagine what it's like for this kid to to ride past that mountain uh, on the way to grandpa and grandma's house saying, what was that all about again? Abraham had two grandsons. It names Jacob and Esau. Uh, Jacob and Esau, Jacob the younger one by minutes, um, He tricks his blind father into helping him rob his twin brother blind. And it was mom's plan to begin with. Jacob has 12 uh, sons, maybe his first mistake. 11 of them sell the youngest one, the littlest one, away to some traveling traders. 
Like, friends, if you're opening up the Bible and saying, what does a normal family look like? You will meet a whole new kind of dysfunction. But through it all, through it all, it's not left without some beautiful moments. It's not left without some touching stories. It's not left without these parts of the story that are so rich in grace. That's where the series comes from. Uh, dysfunctional families. Um, and I just have to say, too, we're going to expand this, like the Abraham story, to stepbrothers, cousins, relatives, uncles, friends, roommates. When you think about family throughout this series, think about whoever you find yourself spending significant amounts of time with. Especially if you pulled out your hair once or twice and said, I am done with this. And we're going to ask the question, if God could use these people in the story of Genesis, what could he do with yours? The story that we're going to get to this morning, though, is, uh, is a story of the first couple, no kids, no step siblings, no uncles, no cousins. It's just him and her. And if you've heard this story before in Genesis chapter 3 is uh, what's commonly referred to as the fall. And in the, the fall, um, Adam and Eve are the couple and they're living in a perfect, perfect world. It's actually this world, but much, much better. Because it's this world not fixed up and made right, but this world before anything went to pot to begin with. It's this world um, unblemished. And the only rules that they have is stay away from the tree in the middle. We have no reason to think that this tree was any different than any other tree other than the fact that God said, just don't do it. I'm giving you a code to live by. I'm giving you divine wisdom instruction. I want to see you thrive. I want to see you succeed. And to do that, you just have to listen. And it takes a few verses before they break that. We're going to get into now the ramifications about what that means to break this code, this wisdom, these instructions that God gave. You can follow along on the back of the worship flow sheet as we read uh, Genesis uh, chapter 3. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of day. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in a garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. What I'd like to do is to actually follow along the course of the story and, uh, and follow along like they're playing the blame game. And there's a ball, right? As they, uh, 
as they exit uh, or have this conversation um, with God on their way to exiting this garden and suffering the consequences of their action, God comes, finds them. Adam is standing there, ball in hand. What are you doing? Hiding? Why are you hiding? I did something bad. I know it's bad. You can almost like sense uh, his um, thoughts. As says, there's like, I know what I should do. But what he says, and he's good at the blame game. It's almost like he's played this before. It, he knows. So what he does, clever, he cuts the blame ball in half and dishes it out. One half, we know the story, he gives it to Eve, right? The woman. Read it again, though, when he says, um, verse 12, the man said, the woman, and this little line, you put here with me. So often we think Adam just puts, like, hands the blame ball over to Eve and has her deal with it. No, no, no. Adam cuts it in half. Half goes to Eve. Half goes back to God and said, hey, hey, this one's also on you, pal. <laughs> God, okay, moves right on and says, and, uh, and there's two people here. So, Eve. And she's now left holding um, her own blame ball. And also the second, that half of Adam's too. And said, Eve. What's going on? And in like this NBA style fluid pass, she receives it from Adam and like passes it right on to the serpent. Just like that. It, perfect. Flawless. She also knows what she's doing. She's pretty good at the game. At the blank game. Like I said before, something within us is just allergic to this thing called blame. We do not want to be uh, left holding the ball for any, any amount of time. There's this thought, I know what I should do. I should own up to it. I should take responsibility. I should admit. But what I do is pass it off as quickly and efficiently as possible. It's a good thing that we have evolved so far from our roots. Because <laughs> I think there's something so true about that story. That the authors, thousands and thousands of years ago, writing out this story, just hitting so perfectly, so inspired on human nature, that even today, we show up, the work isn't done. How many times do I have to tell you? How many times do I have to ask? Is it my job to babysit you while this work gets done? I've got other things to do in my life, but yet you can't even accomplish a single... The reaction goes from like a 2 to a 10, just like that. Pause the conversation. What's going on? Like, where, where, where did that come from? Holding the ball. I know what I should do. I should be more patient. I should be more kind. I should be... But you've got to understand something. People respond to volume. 
If I don't go here, nothing happens. This isn't on me. This is on them. I heard uh, someone tell me uh, a couple weeks ago. They said, you know, it's funny how we say the most hurtful, the most damaging things to those who are closest to us. Whether it's a best friend, a cousin, we will never forget, a sibling or a spouse. It's those people that we know how to hurt so quickly and so deeply that get the the very worst part. In the midst of one of those comments, what is that? Hang on, wait, just like, let me interject for just a moment. Why? Why, why did that have to get said? Why, why did that have to get brought up? You don't understand. I know what I should do. I should, do at least, I should be at least half of the friend or the spouse, husband or wife that I'm asked to be. But you don't understand how much pressure I'm under at work. It's not my fault. The blame ball gets passed around. And as we look at the very first couple, Adam and Eve, we can see this is an old, old familiar story. With a simple solution. Just cut that formula in half, right? I know what I should do, but just cut that in half. I know what I should do. Pause the argument, cause the yelling, cause the fighting. What's that all about? I know what I should have done. Pause the conversation between him and her. What was with that hurtful, hurtful comment? Why did you bring that up? I know what I should have done. Period. That uh, takeaway number one, however, in the same breath, easier said than done, right? On one hand, I almost want to go back to the garden, that conversation with God and Adam and Eve. And they're left holding it. And and God says, why? Why were you hiding? Who told you that you were naked? Did, Did you visit the tree in the middle? Interesting set of questions. Um, we'll get to those in just a moment, but what would have happened if Adam and Eve didn't play the game? What happened if they decided, just, I'm not going to play? What happened if they said, I know what I should have done? Period. What would have happened if they would have taken responsibility for it? Would everything have been different? Would rebellion, would sin, would brokenness have never been introduced into this world? I don't know. 
But my hunch is it wouldn't have made all that much difference in the world. My hunch is if they refused to play the game and owned up for what they would have done, not a whole lot would have been different. They still broke the rules. They still didn't follow the wisdom, the instruction. (laughs) My exam (laughs) is still burned clear through with a hole in it. At whatever point, when I own up to that, if I would have owned up to that, I still don't get to pass. I still don't get full credit. I don't get an A for effort. I violated the rules. There's something in us that wants to skirt around the blame game by trying to fix it. Right? Like, that's the reason why, it's kind of a cliche, but politicians ever own up to the mistakes that they make. Because at some point, they can do more good, they can repair, mend, or spin the situation better by fessing up and owning whatever they did than by continuing to blame others, pass the ball from one to the next to the next. The second takeaway is responsibility. Question, though, is responsibility a way that we try to fix the situation? Or is it something else? Back to those questions that God asks. Listen to what he says, and and also consider the source of who's asking them. Uh, God said, where are you? Seems like he should have known the answer to that. But Adam answered, um, I heard you in a garden. I was afraid because I was naked. Hey, who, who told you that you were naked? God, God knows that someone just informed him of this. And then this question that for anyone else except for God asking would have been out of the clear blue sky. Hey, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And that's a pretty pointed question, right? It's almost like a, like a father-son or, or something. And uh, it walking into the room and going, did you clean up your room like I asked you to? Yes. <laughs> then why is there nothing in your dresser? Why did it look like uh, the, the dryer just threw up in your room? <laughs> Right? There are these pointed questions. Um, one, uh, one commentator about this just merely points out, hey, uh, it seems like God is not so much after the information. It seems like he has that already. It seems like God isn't even about trying to get Adam to fix the situation. He already knows exactly what happened and what the ramifications are of that. He's God. It seems like the motive behind the questions that are asked is, I just want to hear you say that you made a mistake. I just want to hear you say, I messed up. I know what I should have done. I don't want you to try to fix it. That's not your responsibility. I just want you to confess what you did so that I can work on a fix for you. 
The second takeaway is responsibility, not in a way to fix it, but in a way for us to voice how we went wrong to God in confession. It's a tough thing. Probably, admittedly, harder to confess and not try to fix it than it is to try to pretend it never happened or or hide the evidence or pass the blame off to someone else. But there's still a mess. Uh, God continues. He has words for Adam. He has words for Eve. We're going to focus in on the words he has for the serpent. He says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly. You'll eat dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman. And then this, this line. Between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head. You will strike his heel. It's uh, Genesis chapter 3. On most Bibles, it's something like a page and a half into a very long story that lasts over all of human history. A page and a half into this. God is looking at this mess, seeing how it's going to get far worse before it gets better, and saying, there's someone very far down the line in this family. He says to the serpent, you'll strike his heel. It will hurt. He will lose his life. But Jesus Christ, by dying, will offer eternal life, will offer the solution, the fix. The last takeaway on the line is the buck stops here. It's a famous line from Harry Truman, ultimately saying that he will take responsibility for the the world events that happen. Now that's a small thing compared to what Christ has done. Because the blame game has been played and will be played throughout our lifetimes and probably after. Eventually, someone has to take responsibility. And God says, I will do that. I will do that for you.